You want to hear a story? Sure. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's like so San Francisco. It's like, you know, I, re I remember like when you had that incident, when you were living in the Tenderloin and you got up early in the morning, you're going downstairs in the elevator and this guy got in there with a knife, right? Yeah. And he was out of his head to some degree. And I mean, there's a very real possibility that you could have been stabbed in that elevator in the Tenderloin. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's not as extreme as that, but, you know, I've been, you know, you and I are always talking in terms of, uh, you know, self-betterment and in order to be able to um, reach our highest uh, potential, you know, we have these obstacles in our lives. And from a mythological standpoint, you know, these obstacles oftentimes take the form of a dragon, yeah. right? So you have like the monomyth that Campbell talks about the hero's journey and, um, you know, you're leaving, you're, you're starting from your place of comfort and familiarity and extending yourself out into the world and you hit these moments of resistance and sometimes they're ferocious and um, they're beyond our previous ability to deal with them. Yeah. And so one of the things that happened to me last week was, uh, you know, I typically get up pretty early in the morning. I'm usually up around like four or five. And uh, so I, what, the way that I work is I get up, I pull myself out of bed and and then there's this coffee shop down the uh, down the road. Do you remember Uncle Benny's when he used to live? Yeah, I do. Here, so so they open up at four. You know, they're they're they get there at you know like three in the morning. They're making their donuts, and then they open up, and then I go down there and I get my I get my coffee. And uh, there's these you know, they, I don't even really like their coffee that much, but the ladies behind the counter are so sweet. Like there's this this lady uh, from Hong Kong, and uh, I walk in there, and she's so she's just so sweet and nice. It's just a nice way to start the day, even though the coffee is like, you terrible. know, not very good. Terrible yeah, coffee. Yeah, so it makes it palatable to to have the uh, sweet lady greet you first in the morning with the bad coffee, and then you know the lady that runs it. There's two of them. Her, uh, she's from Vietnam. The other one's from Hong Kong, and you know they're just kind, uh, cool ladies. And so I go in there, um, this was on Tuesday, and I was going to hang out with my new girlfriend that night, and we're like, you know, we've been hanging out too often, let's try to like take it easy. So I was like, all right, uh, I'll just come over in the morning, and I'll do my morning thing, I'll get ready for my day. Um, and so I go into this coffee shop, I, and I walk in, there's some people talking, I go to the counter, and uh, I get my coffee, and then from behind me, I can hear these men talking, and this guy's like, um, you know, it's only out of respect that I don't punch you right now, right? This is like five in the morning, right? There's these guys behind me that are like ready to fight. And I look at the one guy and, and I recognize him from my drinking days that, you know, he was, um, you know, in the bar and he was probably up all night doing coke, you know, and he was like five in the morning trying to get some coffee. And then there's this other guy that's like wild haired. He's got a giant scab on his nose and he's got, he's wearing shorts you know, in the middle of February, it's freezing out. And he's, you know, clearly a street person. And um, they're arguing. And the guy's like, hey, I just bought you a cup of coffee. Like, why are you being like this? And, and I'm starting to look around going like, okay, like, how bad is this situation? And I look at the girls behind the counter. And I say, I said, is this a problem? And they're like, yes, this is a problem. And I said, okay, um, is he bothering you? And they said, yes, he's bothering me. And I'm like, okay. And uh, I said, do you, do you want him to leave? And they said, yes. And I'm like, okay. 
So now this is my situation, right? Because the universe just got, kind of put this together. And so now I turn around and I, and I look at the guy and I'm like, Hey ma'am, uh, you know, how's it going? And, you know, the way that street people in San Francisco talk is they're wild. They can't put things together. And the guy's like not full zombie yet, like not civic center, like walking, <laughs> walking around and you can't even like communicate. Like he's a little bit responsive, but he's crazy. And I realized, oh, this guy's just oblivious or belligerent and you don't know what he's going to do. And especially because he has this scab on his face he's like he's obviously not valuing his physicality and i'm thinking like well he probably doesn't value other people's physicality either and i said i said hey uh the ladies don't want you here um so you know we're gonna have to go outside like we're gonna have to go outside and i said come on let's go outside and he's like whoa, whoa, whoa you know what i'm not doing anything i'm a nice guy these are my friends and i'm like listen this guy wants to punch you <laughs> he's not your friend and uh we just we got to go outside and he says, I'm not going to go outside. You know, you can't do that. You can't, you know, he's going into full on panic mode already. And I just like raise up my hands like this. And I just start walking towards him. Right. And you could see his eyes light up. And I just, and I'm like, I'm like, Hey, there's no problem here. There's no issue. You know, we're just going outside. We're just going outside. And he's like, oh, he doesn't quite know what to do, but he's standing back, standing back. And he, and then he like kind of comes up on me a little bit right and he says don't touch me as he's coming at me right and then I just put out my hand like this like the force you know I just put out my hand I put it on his chest and I said we're going outside right and he's like don't touch me don't touch me if you're gonna touch me then why don't you just kill me are you just gonna kill me you're just gonna kill me so it's like full on like 5 15 in the morning in a donut shop <laughs> this guy's like going in a full-on panic attack that I'm gonna kill him Right. And I just calmly just keep walking him back the door, walking him past the door, walking him past the door. And as he's freaking out in my head, I'm like, I wonder if this guy's going to swing at me. Yeah. And I already know in my head, like I'm 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 doing this with one hand. I'm push, pushing him back and I'm just knowing like if he's going to swing at me, then I'm going to duck, put my leg behind his leg. I'm going to bend him over my leg. And then as he's on the ground, I'm going to pull him by his collar and I'm going to put him outside and then I'm going to shut the door. You know, so I already know like what's going to do it. And like, I'm pushing them outside now, like my heart's beating, like things are moving and um, I'm just getting them outside, getting them outside. And he's, you know, starting to flail and panic. And as soon as I get him outside, I see these lights go on. I hear this boop, boop. And uh, the police are just right there. And they look at, they, they open the door and they're like, Hey, what's going on? And I just, I just point to the guy. I don't even say anything. They look. And I just like walk away, you know? So I go into the coffee shop, I, you know, grab my coffee, I walk out, and I'm done. And I'm like, you know, I'm like feeling it, you know, got out of there. And so then I go, I, I'm like, okay, get myself ready. And then I go to my uh, uh, girlfriend's house and she like, we're still like pretty new in a relationship. And um she had like left me a key outside right so in the planners you know in our building she left me a key it's in this little silicone silica, uh little bag so it stays all clean I open up the door and I'm like okay I'm in the front door and it's like I'm going through the castle you know and then I go up I get into the elevator I go up and then uh there's her front door and I put in the code which she put in which is my birthday then I open up the thing it's still all dark and and you know dark everywhere I take off my shoes and I go like 
walk like through the room like in this like secret chamber as it feels like and then I'm looking I go into the room and I see the uh the window there and it's like just starting to turn from mid you know dark dark black to inky blue and I remember like oh, this is the darkest light you know like the the darkest light is when it just starts to turn like just it's like resurrection uh light you know it's mm. like just after um the winter solstice you know it's like oh that's the darkest light and i see her orchids there and and then like you know she's in bed i just see this lump and then i just like climb into bed and uh, it was like really sweet and i'll just like leave that part right there and then uh <laughs> and then and I come, you know, I'm laying there and I'm realizing this is all within like an hour of waking up, you know, yeah. on this Tuesday morning, you know, this incredible like San Francisco moment where you go and you slay a dragon in the morning, you know, you slay a dragon and then you go out and go through the castle and then you um, get this moment of like meeting the princess, you know, yeah. or not really like saving the princess in this. But it's these kind of like little moments of overcoming obstacles while we're on our way to reach our highest potential that are forming all around us. And there's this overarching narrative of the of the hero or the warrior going out into the world to overcome obstacles and slay dragons to get the thing of highest value to add into our lives so that we you know can can go forward uh, powerfully. And so I just said, uh, as soon as this happened, I was. And I saw that darkest light part and I was like, oh, okay. Like, I got to tell Bobby about this one. It's, I feel like it's right in there with uh, the kind of archetypal patterns that we're, we're dealing with all the time. Um, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you went through a miniature hero's journey. Like, yeah. You start off in a place of order at home. Everything's fine. Everything's normal. Yeah. You go out into the unknown. You face some anomaly, like that guy coming up to you yeah um and then you have a choice like do you face it or not because you could have easily just ignored it right and gone on your way yeah but and it was funny too because i i was thinking so last week we were talking about where is the me mm. and then the me is stretched out between uh you know in, in kind of a larger territory than we had first assumed in the sense that you know there's the me that i assume that i am but then there's the me that reaches into potential the me that i could be that that's also you know, very concrete in a lot of ways. And then there's this thing, this higher knowledge that can come into you in terms of like intuition and conscience that you're like, okay, well, I'm in this situation and it's clear that I should do something about, like I'm, like I'm, my conscious is going to yell at me if I don't do something right now. Yeah. And so- there's this higher form of information that's being downloaded that's situation specific. Hmm. And then um, there's a connection to the me that's in that because it's connecting to me. It's not connecting to other people and it's connecting to the me that I am right now. And so there's this, because yeah, I run into that with my art too. It's like, I'll do a line or I'll start doing a composition and I'll feel um, oh, I should do this, but I shouldn't do that. Hmm. And then when I'm thinking, like, who's making that decision? You know, like, I can't find it inside of myself. Like, yeah. it doesn't feel like I'm making that decision. It feels like there's some higher order of consciousness or wisdom that's saying this is proper, 
you know yeah. i don't know like what's your what's your read on that yeah well, i think it's your conscience and it's telling you what to do and what your responsibility is in that moment and like going back to my story in the tenderloin like, yeah i don't think that i faced that chaos very well like so i i got up early in the morning i went downstairs yeah. to get coffee i did that every morning in the tenderloin i don't know why yeah because going out for a 4 a.m 5 a.m walk in the tenderloin yeah. is pretty crazy but i still i don't know why but i yeah. did that every morning then I, and i get in the elevator and i haven't had a coffee yet i haven't woken up yet at all this guy pulls a knife on me backs me into the corner of the elevator um and he says are you the guy that's after me and right and so i was instantly put into this extremely chaotic situation and i would like to think that i would have handled it well in that situation and known what to do or risen up to the occasion but i didn't know what to do i was kind of like frozen and i just said hey man yeah. i'm just i'm just trying to get a coffee man <laughs> yeah 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 which is a I reasonable response yeah and he finally backed off and then I went and got a coffee. I came back and I saw him again in the lobby and he apologized to me and said that he had a hit out on him. Like someone's out mm -hmm. to kill this guy. Uh, but I found like in that moment, I wasn't ready for it. And that's the thing with chaos is that when you, when you reach that moment of chaos or the unknown or that dragon that confronts you, how you act in the face of that is what reveals your character. And in that moment, yeah. my character. So was, that's the you. That's the deeper you. Exactly. Right. Or the deeper me. But yeah. then it's also the deeper me that doesn't exist yet because it hasn't been acted out. So yeah, it's the well, deeper yeah. me that's in potential. And it takes the acting out to be able to make it real. Yeah. And I think so that, that, that gap yeah. right there is what's really fascinating. It's like that gap between potentially real, which is more real than real, and then the actually real which is dependent on action. Yeah. And I feel like that potential realness calls to you and tells you what to focus on and what to do. And that's kind of like yeah. your conscience or like Jung's idea that the your future self is calling to you in the present, telling you what is meaningful and what you should focus on. Because yeah. in that chaotic situation you were in, that's where potential manifests um so you became more through that situation so it wasn't just your current person your current self your current state who you were it's like being in that situation pushes the spirit of transformation up in you and forces you to change because and it's interesting too because you think like oh okay i'm becoming something new now however what it is that you're becoming is genetically encoded into you from your ancestors. Mm. So the newness that you're becoming is actually an ancient pattern. Yeah. Because that's what yeah. it means to be like a human, like a real human. And what's being a, what has been defined as a real human has been that which persists throughout time. So your yeah. new you is actually becoming an ancient human. Yeah. So that's an interesting yep. dichotomy and like a push-pull paradox as well. Yeah, definitely. It reminds me of um Pinocchio. Yeah. Um, how he has to go into the belly of the whale to rescue his father. That's like um like, yeah, like the, Jonah. The end end of the hero's journey. And it's similar with the ancient Egyptian myth of Osir Osiris and Horus. Yeah. Uh, Horus battles Set, who's effectively Satan. And he loses yeah. his eye in the battle. 
Um, now he, he could have just right. finished there, but what he does is he descends into the underworld, finds his dead father who's in a state of torpor, and yeah. he, he gives his father his eye so that his father right. can see. So it's basically like going back to the oldest traditions of our ancestors and then bringing them into a modern light. And like you through, said, through I, awareness, through awareness yeah. and vision. Yeah. Yep. Because that's what Her- Hermes is too. Hmm. is the eye right the all-seeing yeah. eye yep yeah so yeah so it's an awareness of it's like a bringing together of tradition and the spirit of the hero itself like the spirit of all our ancestors that have been heroic in the past those patterns of action or spirits seem to be encoded in us like they're in our genetics and yeah when we put ourselves in a situation where it's chaotic and there's a lot of unknown that yeah. spirit can manifest itself um so it's yeah it's like the oldest oldest like kind of like aggregation of heroic patterns of action that that rises up in you in those moments and that's part of me i guess is right all of that all of those heroic patterns of action in a way but it's hard to identify that as me because it's it's coming from somewhere beyond you in a way yeah. And, you know, one of the things that we've talked a lot in the past, too, is that, you know, especially because we're both creative people, um, to be fully human, you have to find your own voice that stands alone in the wilderness and is truly unique. And once you have that, you know, like Krishnamurti says, you know, the path to truth is good for one trip and one trip only. You know, it's like you find your path to truth. I can't yeah. follow that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not going to be there for me, but you have to find your own unique relationship with the God image. Yeah. And then once you do that, you become the universal human. Yeah. So in, in our supreme uniqueness and singularity, we find the universality of being human. Yeah. You know, it's like, once you push right up against this, it, it, it breaks into paradox. Exactly. That's why the rational can only go so far, you know? Yeah, where we're now you start getting in this mode where consciousness takes on uh, a texture of feeling patterns. Hmm. You know, it's like I remember. Um, yeah, it's 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 like when you fall in love, which is different than just being in love. Like you fall in like like before you fall in love, like you know what it is. Like anybody can ask you, and you're like, yeah, I know what it is. You can describe it, and you can write it down, and it would pass the turing test i guess for humans so whatever like everybody would just say like you know what it is then you fall in love which is a feeling and you're like oh i didn't know what it was at all before but yeah. now i know but it's really just a feeling and then there's no rational way to get there exactly you yep. know what i mean so, so then so yeah. we're kind of teasing with this boundary condition that anything further when you go into the transcendent and the divine you have multiple things being true at the same time, and they're paradoxically oriented in relationship to each other, and it stretches out even further, and it just keeps going. Yeah, you know, so it's it is truly the chapel perilous, you know, when you start pushing out here, and I think that that's why this type of work, especially for artists, is so dangerous because you extend yourself out into the unknown possibility uh, to such a degree that you you can lose your anchor 
back here. And then once that silver thread breaks, you just float, yeah. you know, and then maybe that's what happened when Nietzsche, when he hugged that horse, you know, he just yeah. finally hit the, he just finally hit that last thread and went pink. And then he just started drifting yeah, and couldn't come back. I, I It's terrifying to think of, but it, it's, yeah. it's important to at least name that territory, I think. Yeah, so so what do you think about that? The the artist and their relationship with insanity? Because it seems like as an artist, you're constantly pushing into the transcendent, into the unknown. Like yeah. artists are the people who go from the known into the unknown and bring something back of value. But it seems yeah. like there's a very high possibility if you go deeply into that, that you're gonna lose your mind. Tons of artists do. Like because do you, you can that? because you can go. Like your mind can conceive the beginning of the universe. You know, your mind can conceive what's inside of a black hole. Your mind can conceive the beginning and end of time. And so an artist, they'll get into these modes where they're, and you and I do this all the time. I've seen you do this multiple times. And you've seen me do this multiple times. Is we get an idea that has a feeling quality to it that's so entrancing and intoxicating and amazing that you just keep following it and following it and following it yeah and it's all in the realm of imagination but then part of being an artist is you can't just dwell in the imagination you have to bring back an artifact and that artifact yes. is physical and the physical world has limitations right yeah. so you could and then so the imagination and the material don't line up and then that break is your your brain can't deal with it because it's so it's so hard to dwell in the fantasy and not being able to ground it in reality and so what you can do yeah. is keep pushing into the fantasy part rather than figuring out the material part and then once that once that becomes like a habitual mechanism it's a it's an escape it's a way of not dealing with the world it's a way of still being able to have all of your genius but it doesn't have to be proven in reality because, mm. you know, you might have this idea of like, I want to paint this picture and, you know, in order, you know, and then you start using the paints on the material and then the colors just aren't coming out, you know? And so you're like, well, I imagine this color, but my skill set or the limitation of the materials is only allowing me this color and that, that, that friction in between the material and the realm of pure consciousness is so jarring and intense that for some artists, I think it just breaks. And then, yeah. then there's also the reinforcement mechanisms of that pain, uh, of dealing with that pain through like alcohol or sex yeah. or, you know, any one of these like really disruptive practices that can really undermine your psychology. And then if somebody's famous, you know, now you're putting extra energy onto it. So it's kind of just like a storm of pressure that hits yeah. a friction point that's conceivably insurmountable. And what breaks is the individual trying to hold the vision and not, yeah. you know, I think that's what's happening with like Kanye right now. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something I'm struggling with because I I feel like the more I go into my artistic process and writing process the more I'm suffering to yeah. the point where it's almost unbearable. It's every day. And yeah. 
I don't know how to deal with it except just enduring. Like it, it seems. What's the suffering specifically? Where's the suffering come? Like, like, is there an action or a, a certain quality of the writing experience that that triggers the suffering? Yeah. So, like, I've had a big shift in the way that I write and the way that I'm approaching the artistic process in the last year, year and a half. So. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I've been studying storytelling for a long time and trying to think about the structure of stories. And that's a very rational thing to do. So I, I, I kind of mm -hmm. approached it like an engineer where I'm thinking about like, what's the, the first act and the second act or the third act or the, the stages of the hero's journey? Like there's all sorts of different theories about the, the rational structure of stories. Uh, and when I started writing scripts, what I would do is kind of take that rational structure and then top down, try and build a story around it. And I would, so I would like outline it and say like, okay, yeah. here's, here's the first act and this is this stage in the hero's journey. But I found that it always fell apart when I did that. I didn't find any deep okay. meaning in there. And then mm -hmm. I started, I was thinking about Jung's active imagination process. Um, yeah. And I was also listening to a lot of Tarantino. And mm -hmm. Quentin Tarantino, his writing process, he thinks of it as method writing, where mm. he he says like all those like books and pamphlets about story structure. He's like, who cares about that? He's like, what I do is I engage my imagination, put myself in a setting, put the characters in that setting, and then I let them talk. And yeah, and he sees himself as more of um, like a stenographer that's just like writing down, documenting what's happening. So I've had to switch up my whole writing process from more of a top-down view to that more of a bottom-up view where I engage my imagination and I let the characters speak to each other. But it's always painful as hell when I do it. It hurts. Why Why is that? What's Where's the pain part? I don't know. It seems to just emerge while I'm writing. Like it's a pain in my heart. And it's like- Is it a, because you're like leaving yourself? Like you're going be. into this other place and there's like yeah. a- there's like an abstraction away from yourself and then who it is that you are is trying to keep everything contained, but you're yeah, like, you're, yeah. is that, I mean, that's I'm, yeah, a crazy I'm consciously, thought. But. I'm putting myself into the unknown consciously and yeah. the, the unknown has a, a negative affect to it. So you suffer okay. when you go into the unknown. Um, yeah. why, but when I go into that state and I write scenes like that, where the characters just emerge and speak with each other, it produces yeah. the best writing and it always surprises me because I'll get to, I'll, and I, I specifically push myself to the end of the scene, even if I don't want to. And it's, it reminds me of like, like when I go for a long run and I push myself really hard, mm -hmm. you know, like the yeah. last, the last 10 minutes of a hard run yeah. where your body's mm -hmm. just telling you stop. Like <laughs> you're channeling, you're channeling Goggins. And you're like, God, yeah, exactly. when I hit my limit, there's 30% more. It's in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Like, and I, I hear, why am I doing this? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I hear yeah. Goggins in my head. He's like, don't, <laughs> don't stop when you're tired. Stop when you're done. <laughs> so then yeah. I, just keep, I keep pushing. And it's in those moments where I do like find a way to transcend that pain. But it's exactly the same with my writing process where like when I'm writing a difficult scene, it hurts like hell, but if I endure that pain and keep pushing the scene to its end, it seems to become meaningful. Um, and then I, and that's that's the thing with like suffering and art, is that yeah. if you accept the suffering and you go into it and you and you take responsibility for what you're doing, then you find enough meaning to 
offset the suffering in a way. But is there usually usually when you're having an extreme um focused emotional response to something, it usually means that's only half of the experience that there's a euphoric side to. Like do you go like is there a euphoria first like maybe the euphoria drives you into wanting to write in the first place because you have an idea and you're like oh man i want to write this down there's the euphoria and then you start writing it down and you're like oh yeah so it sounds like that's what i'm talking about in the in the artistic process of the the difficulty of the physicality of the words on the page lining up with the vision that you have in your head and the two not being harmonious is your own self judgment that it's not good enough. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Is that, is that close? Yeah. Yeah. And and to your earlier okay. point, like I think that when I initially go into the writing process, I do have this kind of euphoric feeling, this positive feeling yeah. to it when I start writing, but then every scene is like a descent into hell where I suffer like hell. And then I come out of it on the other side and there's a euphoric feeling at the end. And then you read the scene and you can see that it's meaningful. And you're like, damn, that was worth going through. It it reminds me of uh, what Hemingway said about writing. He said, writing is easy. All you have to do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed. Yeah, Um, right. And I I think that's exactly right. And I've had, because you made a good point earlier that you could have like a vision for something. Like you have a, a deep vision in fantasy but yeah. all, but the hero's journey doesn't end with that. The hero's journey ends with bringing that into a physical thing in the world that you can share with other people. And and yeah. like you said, that's the that's the tough part because you're trying to you're trying to take this irrational transcendent vision and put it on paper, either as a painting right. or in words. And that's just rife with limitation that can't effectively contain what you're trying to put on what well, and it hurts. Yeah, because the vision when you have it has that feeling when you're like, this is going to work. Yep. This is going to work for sure. It's 100% it's going to work. And then you start to put, to craft it and sculpt it. And you're like, ooh, like this might work. Maybe it won't. It kind of does. And then that process of the bleeding, like, because Hemingway was a cutter, you know, he was just (laughs) like, cut, you know, he's like, uh, yeah just reduce, 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 like cut the fat, kill your babies, you know, just try to try to get the sentence to say one true thing. Right. Yes. And so, yeah, I mean, it makes sense to be bleeding like that, but then there's other, the other people like, um, you know, uh, Proust, 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 Swans, Swans way. Yeah. Um, but anyways, he does the opposite, right. Where he's just like, yeah more and more you know more and more uh words more and more decoration more and more flowering more and more yeah you know like tom robbins is like that too very psychedelic and and um but it seems to be yeah you're well you just have a really really high standard for yourself and you know you're you're ruthless and so that's a natural i mean i have that too which is brutal but um the thing that will alleviate that suffering is actually getting to the other side of it exactly. and everything before yeah. the other side is just going to continue to suck yep so so you actually have to save yourself you have to save yourself by giving birth to this thing that if you get it out it's going to be amazing but if you don't get it out it's going to be cancer exactly yeah how about that one 
Yeah. And that's the thing is I, I feel like I'm climbing a mountain that only I can see. Yeah. And, yeah. And I can't stop climbing the mountain because that's cancer. That's entry. Right. I'm like, that means I'm giving up on the vision that I initially had of the top of that mountain. Um, but climbing the mountain is just brutal. And it seems to get increasingly brutal because I because yeah, because I'm constantly self-criticizing and harshly judging myself because as soon as you set a goal for some kind of artistic endeavor, you create a judge and it, right. it judges everything, every action that you're taking, every word that you're putting on the page, every line that you're putting on a canvas telling you that's not good enough. That's not true. Like, and, and, you, and then, and then that becomes, it's not that the work is inadequate. It's that you are inadequate. Yeah. And yeah, that's exactly. where the pain is. It's like, if it's just the project and you're like, okay, maybe this project can fail or maybe I need it to fail in order to give me the necessary information for the next project to be successful. Now it's like, I can't do this because I'm not good enough and I just don't have it in me. Yeah. You know, so once it goes into that realm, it's like a gradation. And once it goes into that fundamental um, judgment of being itself, then that's where the hell comes in. Yeah. Because before yeah. that, when it's just a project, that's more like kind of flavoring for the stew. It's yeah. like you want a little bitter, you want a little, you want a little black with your rainbow, you know, you want a little you know, that's what makes it interesting. And that tension of struggle makes it interesting. But then when you get into, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to burn in hell forever because I'm worthless, yeah. which is like my, tra my tradition of what I grew up in, in the church. Like that's what is specifically taught to children in Sunday school. <laughs> so messed up. Um, that, you know, that's when you're getting into true mental illness. And I think that everybody is doing that to some degree because um, we're all trying to achieve things that are beyond us and we're all failing. Yeah. You know, yeah. and even, even when you do have radical success, it immediately goes away as soon as you wake up the next day, mm. you know? So, so we're just in a constant state of falling, you know, failing forward. Yeah, but we exactly. don't realize we're moving forward. It just feels like we're falling backwards, you know? Yeah. It's like, um, my girlfriend, uh, she had a good one. You know, we were I, we were playing tennis. You know, and I hit a hit a good. You know, I'm always like trying to work on my personality because I have like rough stuff. You know, and I like, hit this really good shot, and I was like, I was like next level, and uh, and because I was being egotistical, she goes previous level. And I was like, oh damn it! <laughs> <laughs> I was no. like, oh, you got me on that one. <laughs> yeah. But it was super fun. But it's all just part of the process, you know. Yep. But yeah, it's brutal. But that's why these kind of conversations are so important. And to be able to know that, you know, we're all dealing with it. And, and it's, you know, this, this moment of like self-judgment and, and evaluation is always done in private because it's our most intimate space. Yeah. And even that, you know, you go out into the world with a brave face and try to bring your best energy into a situation, but inside you're in turmoil. And so that's why, you know, being in dialogue, I think is so useful and, you know, we, we really are in a moment in history where these kind of dialogues, you know, are, are, are possible now, you know, with technology and being able to share and be open and, you know, social media for all of its horrors um, is shining a light 
into a deeper domain than we've ever been able to see before. And so I think when we gain a little bit of maturity and wisdom around it, it's going to ultimately be good. But yeah. uh, right now it's, it's brutal, but it is so helpful to be able to see somebody else down there in the shit. <laughs> you know, and you're like, yeah, okay, cool. It's not just me. Yeah. And people don't really share this often. Like no, most of the time and people don't want to have conversations like this a lot of the time. Like, well, and it's hard to even find the language for it too. It's like, I remember yeah. when, you know, I worked in a wine bar a long time ago and people would say like, you know, I want to, you know, I want to something. And I'm like, wait, yeah, well, wait, you know, they just don't, they, they know they have a thing in their head that they're trying to go for, but they don't have the language to describe like, you know, big, juicy, raspberry, you know, mm. tied up front, fat as it finished, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And so yep. you'd always be running into this problem with uh, language. And for me too, when I go out and I'm meeting with a client and they have an idea of what it is that they want and I know what I can and can't do. And then we have to language the thing before I can even start to sketch it out, to draw it, to see if we can even start. And it's just, it's brutal to use language to describe this invisible territory. And what it is that we're doing right now is, in, is describing an invisible territory. So you have to, exactly. yeah. it's just really difficult to do. And, yeah. um, and people appreciate it when they hear it, but it's also, most people just want to just enjoy their lives and go on, you know, I mean, just, mm. you know, they don't want to just like constantly be evaluating, you know, the, uh, the difficulties of just getting through the day and what it all means. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's rough, but we're, I don't know. We're just, it's just, I don't know. We, we just yeah. like that kind of thing. Yeah. And I feel like most people are suffering deeply in private. Right? Yeah. And they, and that that's something really tragic that, like most most individuals when they're suffering hide it from the world they would rather put on a happy face in front of everyone say everything's good or like put on a, a persona in public and then they hide that like the the worst in them or the, the parts they're suffering and not, not, like i find conversations yeah. with this and with you really helpful because i can talk about the worst in me and talk about how i'm suffering but it's yeah. very, and it's interesting because i think that like why do people hide that is it because when they do well, they're suffering, people reject it or shut them down? Or? Well, because we're fundamentally strangers to each other and we don't have a lot to go on and we have to evaluate the unpredictability of possibility when we encounter somebody else. It's like why business people just dress in suits all the time because you're, you're, you have an outwardly or like you go to, um, downtown san francisco and there's like the finance bro uniform which is the patagonia yeah vest over vest. a check you know with the khaki pant you know and you're like why do all these people dress the same and yeah. it's because they want to signal to each other i'm playing the game i'm trustworthy and finance is risk averse like you want stability right so so you don't want somebody to be telling you about their inner experience what you want to do is feel like this is a safe place to invest my time and energy and, and capital. And so we're always like, if some, like when I had that encounter with that guy in the donut shop and I saw that giant scab on his nose, I was like, okay, this is next level because this is somebody that has a disregard for his own physicality 
and probably has a disregard for other people's physicality. So that's way different than being in an argument, even though there was nothing, there was no physical altercation that happened. He yeah. was signaling me that this is in your life. Like this is a part of who it is that you are, which is physical damage. And that made me go like, okay, this is serious. I need to get this guy away from these girls, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and yes, he, so it's interesting because we have to be dealing with these like thresholds of familiarity and intimacy with each other, yeah. you know, in order to be able to trust each other, because I can't just go up to a, a stranger and talk about my deep psychological issues because if they don't have the necessary amount of care for me and I entrust them with this and they mishandle it, maybe just because they don't care or they're like, yeah, I don't, like get away from me and i'm like oh my god i just opened myself up to this person and they, this is like high school stuff you know because you don't have a you you don't know how so everything's an experiment everything's overwhelming everything's like a new category that you've never encountered before and so you just have to learn over time like there's a there's a moment to be able to share and there's a moment to just talk about the weather how the niners are doing or you know it's, it's what I've always, you know, had a big critique with people who are like, God, I hate small talk. And it's like, well, yeah, but you have got to lay the foundation of small talk to just know that this other person's not like mentally compromised so yeah. that you yeah. even want to. So it's just like, it's, it's not a binary. It's like this kind of, te you know, gradient that stretches out over time. And there's different like stations where you're like, okay, I, I'm comfortable to share this much. I'm comfortable to share this much. It's yeah. like why we... Uh, love comedians right because they take that whole inferred pattern and then they subvert it and they're like well mm. i'm gonna say that and they mess it up but then keep it together but they're able to do that because they're on stage and they don't they're not actually in a dialogue but when you're in a dialogue you have to be like okay i'm going to go this far can you meet me here yeah and yeah, then you save it and like okay i can meet you yep. here and then you know but then when you have somebody that's performing and taking the space you're like oh now we can do these non-ordinary states of consciousness and kind of mess with things. Um, but in general, it's like, yeah, you want to, you want people to read like they're not a threat, but then for people like us, when we look at these finance bros, you're like, you're so lame. <laughs> this is so lame. Like, why are you doing this? And it's like, well, I don't know. It's just hard. It's hard to tease it all apart because it's complicated. You know, I mean, that somebody like that could be saving the world. You know, they could have an NGO in Africa yeah. that has a hundred schools that, you know, and the only way they get funding is to go into Salesforce tower and extract millions of dollars yeah. um, to be able to make it happen. But yeah, you know, I don't know. It's a tough one because yeah, I'm super judgmental a lot of the times. Yeah. And like you said, it, it comes down to trust and there's like levels to that trust. Like, you have small talk with someone to lead to big talk and not always. Yeah. Sometimes you just have small talk with someone. It stays a small talk, but sometimes yeah. you have a bit of small talk. You get a feel for each other, have, have some trust for each other. And then it gets into big talk. Like I always yeah. find this fascinating with Uber drivers. Like yeah. some, of the, some of the most deep conversations I've ever had with people are with random Uber drivers where yeah. I'll get into an Uber, we'll have a couple of minutes of small talk, we'll get a feel for each other and get some trust, and then we'll just open up to each other. So I yeah. feel like there are people out there that are craving these kind of conversations and it's but, it's good to like let like let that off your chest and be able to yeah. speak about that deep stuff, even if it's just a, a random person that you met temporarily. 
But that's very low risk too, in the sense that you're probably never going to see that Uber driver again. So, so you yeah. can risk more. Whereas if you're at a cocktail party or a company party and you really opened up in that same way, like you run the risk that if you say something devastating, you could suffer real reputational harm and people might not want to work with you. And, um, and that's intuitively on the table, even if it's not rationally on the table, there's a part of us that knows that. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I, like working in the, the tech industry and just seeing the corporate world up close, there's this mantra in the tech world um, about the culture of companies saying, bring your full self to work. Yeah, right. That's such bullshit. Nobody like, wants that. I'm keep, like, keep your, my mantra in my company is keep your full self away from me. Curate <laughs> your best self. Curate your best self. Yeah, I'm like, you do know. you know what my full self is? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, no. I barely know what it is, but I know it runs right. deep and it's terrifying yeah. and it contains a bunch of stuff that you probably don't want me to bring up at work. Right. Um, it's also very inefficient. Like, how can you, how can you undermine your own ability to keep on the, keep your eye on the goal more than bringing in a bunch of unnecessary psychological chaos into a workflow where now it's like you're having a meeting to try to solve a problem and you're like you know what my gra you know my grandma told me when i was young that people really shouldn't x y and you know and all yeah. like that we're just trying to get the thing done. but yeah. you know that's kind of the moment that we're having right now um you know in in culture but that's all necessary to be able to be worked out you know it's like you know, it pushes and you're like, oh, that didn't work. And then it comes back and then it pushes and comes back. And, you know, I, I have to believe that it'll find its, it'll find its way, especially when things start getting rough again, you know, when things start getting, you know, the, the, was it the necessity is the something of mother of invention? Mother of it's like necessity. It's like, that's because things are rough. So you got like, gotta, you can't be indulgent exactly. in all these other non-necessary things you know you got to like really get things done but you know that's the we live in the most affluence that any human being has ever lived in really as a whole than any other time in history so we don't even know how to deal with this new psychological uh development here it's just it's never it's never had a chance to develop before because people coming up to this point in history have just been suffering you know starving and dying of disease and just trying to stay warm in the winter and you know they've never they've never had the luxury of being this indulgent yeah exactly yep yep yeah and i feel like a lot of a lot of companies have been kind of um possessed by ideology and i think mm -hmm. that's like that's what happens in companies it seems to be over and over again the rise and fall of companies is that they get possessed by an ideology and then it distracts them. And I feel like a lot of the, the tech world today is possessed by this ide ideology of endless progress. That yeah. all these like futuristic visionary narratives, everything's great. We're going to have endless growth into the future. But I feel like in the in the tech industry right now, we're hitting a, a limit where I feel like the, the internet has kind of matured now. Um, yeah. Whereas for the last 30 years, it was in this like frontier, frontier era growth mode. So we right. constantly pushed this progressive ideology. And, um, and that was good to an extent, because it showed people what ways we could act in the future to get benefit from this technology. 
But now a lot of it's a commodity and those narratives aren't working anymore. And now there's now I feel like a lot of the companies are like possessed by this ideology of like being overly positive and um, like just thinking that yeah. endless, endless growth in the future. Right. And then there's these moments where a company will make errors, you know, like do some real social harm. And as you're like growing into to the future, you're like, okay, well, what sort of like real consequence do you have to take into account when you're working with these companies that are trying to figure out their ideology or their own um, value system? Like the other day I was, I was out shopping and I, I was in a consignment store and I bought this shirt and then uh, I got it home and I realized it was a Hugo Boss shirt, right? And I'm like, well, I guess I support the Nazis, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> Hugo Boss was the one that created the Nazi uniforms in World yeah. War II. And so then, but then I was just like thinking about it for a while and I'm like, so do I just forgive Hugo Boss or where's the accountability? Or at what point do we all just like, you know, let IBM be IBM with no consequence, let Volkswagen be Volkswagen, Volkswagen without consequence, you know? Yeah. You know, Von Braun got, uh you know the first men on the moon like that guy was you know top tier nazi nazi you know and um like what's my responsibility like do i just never buy a hugo boss shirt again like so yeah, it's, it's yeah. interesting because it does you know we talk about you know where is the me and then if you just kind of shift that a little bit to the company well part of who the me is if you're hugo boss is that you're a Nazi, Nazi, not only a Nazi <laughs> sympathizer, but, a, you know, you helped build the war machine. I mean, the Nazi uniforms are like the sweetest army uh, military gear ever made. I mean, that's what you're bringing <laughs> to the table, you know, and like, how do you even hold that? Like, where's the me in a uh, in a company? And then, you know, you've brought yeah. this up a bunch of times, yeah. like one of the big distinctions and why we should never give corporations the same rights as individuals is because a corporation has the potential of never dying. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And so where, you know, where's the me and the corporation there? I don't know where I'm going with this, but it was just yeah, it interesting. It reminds me of um, that, that idea of separating the art from the artist. And I'm always yeah. talking about this and I would love your thoughts on it. Like take Bill Cosby, for example. Right. Got great comedy, did terrible things. Can you- Allegedly. Can no. you- Actually, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he probably did. <laughs> But yeah, how do you, yeah, no, he got off on a technicality, you... I think. Okay, I didn't even realize. I haven't followed much of his. Yeah, it was like some. Um... There was like a procedural error, and um, so the case was thrown out or something like that. But he's supposed to be touring. Yeah, I heard. Yeah. Have you heard about that? Yeah, and I'll go see him live. It's like you know, um, what are his names? Is what do you name his? Uh, yeah, I would probably. See, I don't. Would I see him? I don't know if I. I could probably be talked into it pretty easily, <laughs> but like, uh, you know how uh, OJ wrote that book, if I did it, I know, it, you yeah. know, and then a uh, Cosby comes out with this tour. If I did it, you know, yep. no, I don't know. This is a terrible, uh, terrible line to explore, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the distinction between art and artists, I think it depends on what the art is and what the person did, you know, it's like, you know, Van Gogh, um, when he was in Arles and had his big falling out with uh, Gauguin and uh, was losing his mind, the people of Arles, the little town in France that the Yellow House was in, where he painted, you know, some of his most uh, masterful work, 
they were so afraid of Van Gogh mm, that yeah. uh, they came together as a as a town and wrote a letter to the mayor that this strange man was, uh, you know, following women into their houses and like touching them un- inappropriately. I mean, this is like horrendous, uh, yeah. hor- horrendous kind of actions. But, you know, it's speculated now that he had frontal lobe epilepsy, probably had syphilis, um, you know, was just a terribly troubled person. And his art, his painting had elements of that dark and light battle Mm. in it. And so on the one hand, you could say that Van Gogh was a pretty screwed up person that, you know, really hurt people. And then on the other hand, it's like all of that struggle and that humanity goes into his paintings. And that's part of what makes his paintings amazing because they're so full spectrum of the darkest of darks and the lightest of lights, you know, and that gets a, so with that, you're like, okay, well, that's, I don't know, like there, like there's almost like kind of value in that, but then you look at, um Cosby who is put up as like America's dad in the Cosby show and his his Mm. act was all wholesome and he was portraying something as himself yeah which ends up being deceptive and part of the art is being able to relate to the person that's saying the words and now that you can't relate to that person the whole story changes because the story's not the story you know it's like when you're you know this the peterson thing when you find out that your wife is cheating on you all of a sudden you don't know who your wife is anymore because you don't know what the real story is you don't know what your marriage is and you don't even know who you are anymore and so you don't even know what life is anymore yeah and that's like with cosby lying to everybody you don't know who he is or what it is and so the art of being able to take you along on a mental journey you know, through a stand-up routine falls apart because you can't get out of this like, oh yeah, you're that guy that took advantage of all these women and that's just dark and I can't get to the place of funny with that. So in that example, I think the person severely undermines the quality of the art, but with Van Gogh, not so much because, yeah. The, yeah. The, you know, so it, it's, it depends on the medium and the person and the artist the particulars matter i think in this one but i don't know what do you think well i'm always torn about it and and yeah here's the thing i find that i'm most interested in the artists that have that much darker side like yeah and but to your point it depends on whether that their dark full self is being represented like that in their art because the problem with bill cosby is he's representing on stage and on tv this happy-go-lucky American right. dad, but then behind the scenes, he's a totally different person. Like one of my favorite writers ever is Charles Bukowski. Yeah. And Charles Bukowski was a terrible person in a bunch of ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the, that one interview of him kicking his wife on the, on the couch because they're both like hammered and arguing. Have you ever seen yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, dude, it's brutal. Yeah, and I've read tons of Bukowski's work he's probably yeah. my favorite writer of all time yeah um but he was kind of a sick guy as well and like very nihilistic in a sense but that and not all not totally 
But yeah. but he put that into so, his art at least. So his his okay, art and so, his writing shows all of that. So there isn't a separation yeah. between the artist and the art in a way because he was showing it fully. But don't artists get a little bit more space to explore their sovereignty because their job is to shed light on all aspects of being a human. Yeah. And so in yeah. order to be you know, like, do you know Francis Bacon, the British, uh, British, uh, I've heard of him. Artist. He wrote these. He he would paint these giant paintings. His famous one is the Pope, like a Pope type figure on a black background in a uh, bed that's waking up, just screaming. Really dark stuff. I mean, really, really, really dark stuff. And incredibly troubled person. Um, and you know, or maybe a better example is that Geiger right this week oh, the guy yeah. that created aliens right there's you're like a... what how did this get into the mainstream exactly. you know but there's something about like halloween you know it's like there's something hmm. necessary about halloween being a touchstone point for people grounding out darkness yeah you know and so artists yeah. kind of need to have the freedom to go into those dark places because if you don't represent those dark places then they push out into society anyways in these really demented ways. It's like there's that young quote, something like, um, you're going to remember this better than me, but it's about the unconscious. And if you don't see it, it it'll manifest in your life and you will call it fate. Exactly. You know that one? Yeah. If you don't make I the butchered it, but yeah, if you don't make the unconscious conscious, it will manifest itself as fate. So yeah, like the unconscious is playing on you all the time. And yeah. if you don't become conscious of it, it will still just control you, but you'll see it as outward events that are happening to you. So it will seem like it's fate, but it's really your unconscious, like pushing you towards it. And he's saying like, you should get control of your fate, get, get a conscious yeah. understanding of the unconscious so that it doesn't present itself as fate that you're kind of controlling your fate more. Right. And so, you know, okay. So let's just, so you and I both, love kanye and yeah, yeah, um you know up. i've been watching what's been going on right now and there's this recent uh podcast with uh, eric weinstein on it and uh he was talking with rogan and it was pretty challenging to listen to it but he had the this uh one point about when kanye said that he loves hitler yeah it's because when he hit that moment with yeezus hmm you know, that I am gone. And then he goes into Donda and all this stuff. So he is identifying as Christ yeah. and Christ loves everyone. Yes. And he's like, whatever you do to the least of me, you do to me kind of mentality Yeah. where uh, the idea was that Kanye is trying to love everybody, including the absolute worst of us like Hitler, yeah. but he's, just not the message is all fucked up you know he's just yeah. not doing a good job conveying that and for me i don't have a problem with it because i don't need kanye to be anything else but an artist and i want him to go into the wild places like exactly. i want him to say the things that nobody else can say like i want like kanye fucking has done a lot for my artistic life i mean he has really helped me, you know, like I, 
like I really admire him. Like he goes into a place from an artistic standpoint that is terrifying, yeah. terrifying. And he just does it with swagger and you're like, God damn. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, he's yeah. so good. Jesus is like that and album. He's, he's is, consistent too. Oh my like, God. Every well, one of his last his couple album, albums, I think, sir. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the last couple have been a bit rough, but yeah. before that, consistently, every album was a masterpiece and they were all totally different from each other. Like yeah. my college dropout, 808s and heartbreak, my yeah. dark twisted fantasy. That, yeah. But Jesus for me is my favorite album of his. Me too. It's I've one of my listened, favorite albums ever. I'm still stunned by it. And I've listened to that album yeah. hundreds of times. And it's yeah. so dark. Like the, yeah. the sound is dark. The lyrics and the stories that he's telling are dark. And I, I consider yep. it like a shadow gospel in a way. Because it's yeah, the first time. Shadow gospel. It was the first time I, I, down. I heard the sound of a man who was struggling with Satan and Christ at the same time. Yeah. Like you could hear him struggling with it. Yeah, and he took all of that pain of that paradox and created uh, art out of it. And, right, and somehow listening to that album has helped me become more conscious of my own dark side. So right, so yeah, but, we have to give artists so, space to go, but to those other places. Yes, but Kanye appeals to a lot of really impressionable youth, and so if Kanye's saying like, "Hey, the Jews are in power, and the Jews have," you know disproportionate control of our artists in the record industry and we need to get that power back by diminishing the jews whatever that means and i love hitler yeah <laughs> you know double whammy and then a youth is going like oh i don't understand the uh the subtext of you know kanye is actually embodying the spirit of christ and trying to love it you know i mean to a 12 year old you know yeah, in, yeah. in south side chicago like what are you gonna like there has to be some sort of responsibility because that is going to make things worse so yeah. where is that line you know that's yeah. a rough one too yeah and i'm actually i'm quite impressed by our culture at how we've given kanye the space in public to say all yeah this. like yes there's people trying to censor him he's getting kicked off platforms but for the most part and i feel like american culture especially gives artists a ton of space to be able to make those mistakes and we don't judge them as yeah well. but um yeah i've got mad love for but, but where is the line there let's let's seriously try to try to think about that you know because like do we just do we just absorb that as a culture and be like yeah there's probably gonna be some anti-semitic neo-nazis like at least a couple that yeah. are gonna like, <laughs> look at kanye and be like that makes a lot of sense, you know. Yeah, he's probably he probably did birth a handful of neo Nazis, maybe. Yeah, but where's the line? Like, what do we do with that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of like the line between hate speech and regular yeah. speech. That, like, you could say, no, this person is saying something wrong. It's negatively impressionable on other people. We're going to shut him up um or and say no we're not going to allow any hateful speech but as soon yeah. as you do that like things descend into chaos because we need to allow yeah. hate, hateful speech to allow for true speech and, that, and that's the thing is when i'm listening to someone like kanye it's not like it doesn't sound like he's saying like what his belief is or what he knows he's thinking 
Like, yeah, when he's on a podcast and talking about these ideas and saying these extreme things, he's thinking, but he's just like thinking yeah. out loud and they're complex ideas. He's caught up with them. He just had a terrible public divorce. Everyone's saying he's crazy. Yeah. They're trying to put him on meds. Like, I can't even imagine what yeah. he's going through. But in terms of like where that line is for responsibility, it, it lies with Kanye. Uh, yeah. And well, but it lies be... with us. Hmm. But just in the last podcast, you were saying something that contradicts that because you're saying if you do a lot of work and your work goes out into the world, there's a piece of you that goes out into the world and exists outside of your physical body. Hmm. Um, and so that you could say the same thing about Kanye, like Kanye is going out into the world, you know, and yeah, it's that line is like where it's just the thing that's so hard is that there's always a line, but it's never sharp. Hmm. There's a line that, but it's always a gradient. Yeah. And yeah. so I don't know, like, well, I like, like right now, if, yeah, go ahead. It just reminded me of that Dostoevsky quote, and this is an extreme line, but he said that everybody is responsible for everything that everyone else does all the time. So, because yeah. I, I could just say, yeah, I'm just responsible for me. I'm not responsible for you, Kanye, anyone else. But Dostoevsky mm -hmm. takes that line of like, no, you're responsible for everyone else all the time. And... That, and that's the same idea that Jordan Peterson says about like, well, do your actions matter or not? And you mm -hmm. can say, no, they don't matter. Nothing matters and be nihilistic. Or you could say that, you know, some of my actions matter, but some of them don't. But that's kind of sitting on the fence. But he says, no, every single action matters. And every decision you make tilts the world towards heaven or hell. So it's like every individual has this ultimate responsibility for everyone else. And like you said, Kanye has mm -hmm. put so much of his self into the world through his art that maybe we all have part responsibility for him and his actions in a way. We all have to take responsibility for everyone else in a way. So we And that's why we can't just reject someone. Like it, when someone's acting evil, we can't just outright reject them because we're rejecting part of ourselves. yeah but then what but but okay well do you believe in the death penalty i'm torn about this part of me thinks that yeah. there, are, there are some people who are embodying such a level of evil and they're not trying yeah. to get better at all and them just mm -hmm. being alive is is tearing everyone else down and dragging us into hell so i think and getting off on it yeah exactly you know that's the other thing it's like no remorse exactly like they're actually really enjoying yeah. it and they'll tell you that they enjoy it and they're like you let me out of here i will go do the same thing again and again and again until you kill me so you might as well kill me exactly yeah like there are the, that's yeah but the christian view is like loving even your enemies as much as you love yourself and how can you and thou shalt not murder so I'm really torn about it. Like part of me thinks, yes, death penalty makes sense. There are cases when we should kill someone. They're being so evil. But I also well, and... need to give them a chance for redemption and a chance to have remorse because I think that those people can be redeemed. Yeah, but it's also like, um, you know, if you're on a farm and a horse breaks its leg, you shoot the horse, you know? It's like, in a way, it's like possible to maybe get that horse back to a place of health, but it's going to take so much time and resources and play, like, it's just, 
it's just a judgment call at some point or if you see like maybe you hit a hit an animal you know while you're driving and you pull out you hit a deer or something like that and you're like oh my god like it's possible you could nurse this thing back to health but no and then you just shoot it in the head and you relieve its suffering because it's suffering but then you also cancel out the chance for some sort of future flourishing yeah yeah and, and I, it depends I don't know on, yeah it depends on if that person wants to get better if they want to be redeemed in some way then we should give them that opportunity to but right and this doesn't even call into account the uh, fallibility of the judicial system which is it you know gonna make or yeah i don't know i'm torn on it too but i mean my intuition is that yes some people should be removed from the the game board hmm. like you should not have some people on the game board yeah. or maybe you just put them in a you know tower you know a cell forever if you don't want to because then that I, yeah i don't i don't know the death part is it's almost it's almost a more grace grace giving way out than making somebody live out the rest of their life in without freedom yeah you yeah. know it's only like i like i could see myself like me i don't know who knows i would i've never been in that situation but yeah. yeah it's 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 complicated but then yeah so then conscience comes in it's like conscience even in play in some people you know doesn't sound yeah. like that yeah yeah i think for some psychopaths yeah. they don't have that sense of conscious conscience guiding them yeah yeah that's cool so what, what do you got coming up this week what are you uh, looking forward to this week um lots of work um yeah so just working my day my nine to five day job and outside mm -hmm. of that just writing so um, i've put together like a, a solid plan for the next six months to finish the main script okay. i'm working on and i've kind of got a, a separate phase for production and editing because it seems like the production process and editing process use totally different parts of my brain yeah um so i've just listed out like what are the every single step that i need to take for production and i've already got tons of it written i just need to like compile yeah. organize it read some books again fill in the gaps uh and then i'm going to go into a, an editing phase for the next like four months but i'm just like uh, i feel like i've stepped up my productivity and i've got much more of a plan for um, attacking it now whereas before i was just yeah. like every day or two like writing a scene here and there i wasn't very consistent with it but yeah. now i've got like a solid structure and thing that i'm aiming at like i think i could get this script done in the next three to six months um, okay and now that i've got that goal and that structure i'm just like motivated more and i'm just getting mm -hmm. after it every day like i'm more i, I want to tick things off that list so yeah i'm feeling really good about my writing process but it's painful as hell like yeah i'm exhausted like it takes everything out of me. I'm thinking about it from wow. the morning I wake up, from at night when I go to bed. And it's an obsession. Yeah. It's like this painful obsession that it's like a monkey I've got to get off my back. Yeah. Um, do you do your writing from that chair that you're in right now? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Do you ever try going out to like cafes or going out like to a park bench or anything Sometimes. like that? Yeah. Yeah. I find that that really helps a lot. I, I find that me doing work in a room with a lot of other people hmm. it just kind of helps 
like if I'm stuck and I go to an active cafe, it can kind of get things going. Um, like Benny's? No, that that's a little too. Uncle Benny, yeah, this that's it. It's a little too chaotic. There's a little too much going on there. And then there's um there's a lot of uh loud Chinese guys that uh work that meet there a lot. So there'd be like a group of 10 Chinese people that are kind of aggressively talking. Hmm. And it's I just find that like too much talking, especially Chinese has like this kind of aggressive quality to it that it's kind of jarring. But then I'll just generally put in my headphones and, and stuff. But um yeah i find it kind of got to hit the right balance of something that's busy but not it's a little too like new york style yeah like intent like things coming and going and and it's just the the layout of it isn't quite right for me. yeah but um okay cool well you want to you want to wrap it here yeah well, i'd be curious to know what you're doing this week what you've got on oh this week um so i'm starting a new uh i'm starting a new installation at um a biotech venture capital fund in south san francisco where they want this uh whiteboard installed uh it's called a remarkable wall so i'm doing this mural and i'm basically taping it all out uh in this geometric design and then i'm have and then I'm having my assistant paint it. I'm doing a six foot by four foot canvas uh, next to it. Um, and that's a job that's got to get done by Friday. And I'm nervous about it getting done. I just hired a new uh, person for operations that's doing all the uh, project management and personal assistant. Like she just started two days ago. And so we're uh, going through, like we just started using Asana. And, um, you know, we're using, doing all of that. So I'm learning all of that. And then the other biotech campus that I'm working on in Hayward, I've, I've done a bunch of these wayfinding monuments that are uh, 15 feet by four feet. And they're all basically sculptures with my designs in it. And it's, um, it's like an entrance monument to be able to show people where to turn into the campus. And then there's these different wayfinding monuments that this is all getting fabricated in Stockton. So we're going Kincaid and I uh, from Bonneville Labs are going to Stockton on Tuesday to be able to check out the fabrication process. And then also on this campus, um, I'm doing all the landscaping. So I'm working with the landscape architect to be able to move these like two ton boulders around and getting all these uh, plants and rocks all laid out so that the entrance walk up to the building is uh, really impressive. And it's a $180 million project that the, the financiers are coming, flying in from all over the place to come check out on the 15th. And so it's like coming down to the wire of whether or not they're going to be impressed with what it is that we've done. Because they've taken a huge risk on me uh, because the aesthetics of this campus is so aggressive. Hmm. I mean, I've just really went full on into this and so there's this compression happening with all these different elements and i'm trying to learn how to run the company so that i have multiple job sites going on at the same time yeah and um then just a bunch of proposals and project management and other stuff coming up so it's been it's pretty hectic but 
Um, I'm hoping to be able to get the process of, uh, you know, getting my ideas out into the world, um, getting the production line of execution uh, solidified so that hopefully by the end of the year, um, I'll have a little bit more freedom to be able to work on my own stuff rather than trying yeah. to run the company, which is all my own ideas, but they're, they're all just, it's just, it's just difficult when you're dealing with, you know, architects and brokers and financers and owner operators and project, you know, builder, you know, it's just, it's just a lot. And as you know, this is all very new to me. It's only been like a year. So I'm still in the, in the trenches for uh, trying to figure this out, but it's, but it's been good. Um, but yeah, this week's going to be, that's going to be challenging for sure. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I'd love we can to, one of our upcoming podcasts, I would love to like do a deep dive into your art, kind of how it's evolved. Cause I, I find okay. it fascinating that you've like scaled up from like individual art pieces to these huge, like large artworks in big corporate buildings. And it's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. I want to talk to you about the, the challenges of scaling up an art business. Cause it seems like the, the business world and the world of art are kind of like they have some tension between each other. So I'd love to explore that with you. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not a, I mean, I'm flailing in a lot of ways, you know? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm doing well enough that the company is surviving and we're getting in clients are happy and, you know, I'm learning, but it's, it's a lot of in the end, what, will be seen as unnecessary suffering <laughs> that I'm yeah. going through right now. Cause I'm just like, what is going on? Like, how am I? So I just don't know how to do it. And you know, like I never went to college. I never worked in an office. I went from waiter to artist and I didn't even know how to write emails. Like, yep. you know, so it's been brutal, but, um, but yeah, I mean, we can, we can, we can do all that. And yeah, and I can, I'd love to show you what I'm working on uh, for sure. Perfect, Sounds good. Awesome. Okay, man. Well, it's great chatting with you and, uh, and we'll be in touch for sure. You too, mate.